The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, Bernie Nagel. We'll be discussing the hard work of soft management. Bernie is a visionary speaker and a writer, and he's co-authored a book called Leveraging People and Profit, The Hard Work of Soft Management with Perry Pascarella. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that later. I wanted to let you know, too, Bernie created this concept of the ultrapreneur. He defines that as one who leads an enterprise with conspicuous regard for all stakeholders. I just think that's really beautiful. So, Bernie, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thank you, Olivia. It's uh, lovely to be here. Thanks. So I really like this concept of soft management, and it seems to fit with your definition of the entrepreneur, the one who leads an enterprise with conspicuous regard for all stakeholders. Can you share some of the philosophical underpinnings of the entrepreneur concept? Like, where does that come from? Well, sure. Uh, well, the word itself, uh, when I created the word, uh, you know, I just took uh, the, the two words, uh, altruistic and entrepreneur, and, and jammed them together, so it's altrepreneur. And at first, that, that seems like a uh, kind of a, a strange pairing, if you will. Uh, but, but it really goes back, uh, really, to my upbringing, my childhood. You know, I was brought up in a very Catholic Christian home, uh, of course, exposed to Scripture from a, an early age. And uh, if you're familiar at all with Scripture, you know that uh, there are many, many references to servants and masters throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. But mm. there are some specific references that uh, that kind of stuck with me. Uh, one from is from the Gospel of Mark, and he, he says, if anyone wishes to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. And again, in Matthew, uh, they talk about whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your servant. And, and mm-hmm. those ideas, you know, they, they, they stick with you through youth, uh, and, and they, they kind of inform your thoughts. Uh, and as mm-hmm. I got into the workplace in the 70s, uh, I had an exposure to quality circles. And uh, okay. I was assigned... To, to, to create and run quality circles uh, in, as a young supervisor, basically, right out of college. 
So that experience caused me to get an appreciation for the the kinds of engagement and ideas and innovation that's lying dormant out there in the workforce if we just learn how to engage it. Well, can you just share a little bit more about Quality Circles? Like what 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 was the goal and maybe a little bit about what happened when you had one or, or facilitated one? Yeah, you, you had a, a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Mitch Ditkoff, and, and he referred back. I think Mitch and I are probably about the same age because there aren't a lot of us around that remember Quality Circles. It was one of those early fascinations with Japanese management, Japanese leadership that came to us in the 70s. But the whole idea of Quality Circles is engaging teams of employees in, in problem-solving, uh, creative problem-solving, in uh, you know, uh, innovation, ideas, quality improvement, mm-hmm. cost reduction, etc. And it, it was a, a very new concept in American management back in the 70s, and, and I was really kind of thrown into it without any training, uh, without any uh, introduction to it. Uh, actually, the the, uh, the executive had torn a, a, an article out of a flight magazine that talked about quality circles, and he penned a note at the top and said, this looks pretty interesting. Why don't you just go do this? So, That's so – how fun because, you know, it, it was probably a – it turned out to be a really life-changing experience, and it just kind of got assigned to you on a, on a whim almost. So that's really fun to, to hear how that got started. Yeah, actually uh, – you know, it was a good news, bad news story. The good news was it started off with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of ideas and a lot of creativity evolved. Mm-hmm. But because I had no training and facilitation and no, tr- no means or no knowledge of how to train the team in how to mm-hmm. analyze data or, uh, you know, the creative problem-solving methodologies that are available today, uh, the initial success eventually faded and... Uh, it, it, after, you know, a period of uh, less than a year, it really kind of faded out. The enthusiasm waned, and, and you know, that was the end of Quality Circles. But it taught, So they it just taught, deemed them to fail rather than knowing that they just needed more support? Is that exactly. I, I didn't really know how to sustain it. I, I didn't have this facilitation skills. I didn't know about right. all the teams and tools that are available today. And, right. uh I wasn't able to sustain it. It's not because the people ran out of ideas. I simply wasn't able to sustain the enthusiasm. But it, mm-hmm. but it taught me a really basic, important lesson, and that is there is this wealth of information, this wealth of innovation and creativity and enthusiasm that's available between the ears of every worker in the workplace. We just have to learn how to get it out. Oh, that's inspiring. And that is kind of what Mitch said, that there is just this... Uh, in the group, it kind of is brought out where it may not be uh, if you talk to somebody one-on-one or expect them to come forward on their own. I did want to ask you, this, you said this came from some of the Japanese, a Japanese model. Is this what Toyota was using when they started to create really great cars? Do you know? Well, Toyota and, and most uh, of the Japanese companies that were, were famous through that time period were using quality circles, but they were using a whole host of other tools. In fact, those were tools that eventually came to be known as lean, and all the lean tools that are available today. Of course, lean is, is one of the most wow. popular uh, workplace uh, cost reduction and, and improvement methodologies that's being used. 
But uh, okay. But but what I learned from that experience was, you know, four really basic fundamental principles about people in the workplace, and and those informed me over the next you know ten or fifteen years as I as I grew through the ranks and and acquired more responsibility and more authority. But those basic mm-hmm. beliefs are number one: people are basically good. They want to do well, and they want to grow, and they want to develop. The second one is everybody's really good at something. Mm-hmm. Everybody is really good at something. And, you know, the, the hard thing is figuring out what that is or taking the time to find out what that is. The third one is yeah. what I do makes a difference. The most motivating thing in the workplace at the end of the day is going home and, and say, being able to say to yourself, what I did made a difference. I, I did meaningful work. And the mm-hmm. fourth one is people and profit are not mutually exclusive business propositions. Those four wow. things then, you know, those, those kind of bubbled up and uh, informed the rest of the work that, uh, that I've done for the last uh, two and a half decades. Oh, that's really inspiring. And when you pointed out number three, what I do to make, what I do makes a difference, I was thinking back at how you said you had trouble sustaining the quality circles. And I would imagine that if people are having these wonderful ideas and then they're not being taken on as through testing or, or implemented or the, the steps that follow, then people would probably get tired of, of being inspired and then seeing it just fall, uh, you know, not, not have anything happen from it. So absolutely. maybe that was one of the reasons. Yeah. That is the biggest reason that most of these kinds of efforts fail is because uh, people generate ideas. Uh, they generate this creativity, this innovation, this enthusiasm, uh, this discretionary effort on their part. You know, discretionary effort is a, is a phrase that's, that's in a, a lot of use today. But then they mm-hmm. don't see anything come of it. And, yes. and and that that leads to discouragement, and eventually just leads to that, you know, I, why bother attitude. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's great. So so you've been able to see this, I guess, or or you came up with these four principles, and then you were able to reflect at every other consulting job or position you had to to validate that these were the core principles. That's. Well, these, you know, these, these were, you know, fundamental underpinnings, you know, as we started the conversation about, and, and that, that really kind of led into the late 80s and early 90s when I became familiar with the work of Robert Greenleaf. And mm. for those who are not familiar with Robert Greenleaf, he is the gentleman who introduced the concept of servant leadership into the workplace. And Robert Greenleaf wrote, you know, uh, books and articles, and uh, he published a tremendous amount of content about servant leadership. And and his ideas about servant leadership really came back very much to a, a very biblical or a very scriptural basis. Uh, one of the favorite quotes from him uh, it goes like this, the servant leader is servant first. It begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve and to serve first. Mm. Then conscious choice begins one to aspire to lead. And the difference manifests itself in the care taken by the servant, first to make sure that other people's highest priority needs are being served. So Robert Greenleaf really brought this this, this scriptural concept into the workplace and uh, I became familiar with his work and began reading it extensively. 
and uh, and that then kind of layered on top of you know the, the previous uh, thirty years of, of upbringing and, and my own learnings in the workplace to to lead to this concept then of, of the entrepreneur, you know, one who leads with conspicuous regard for all stakeholders. And the word conspicuous is really important because mm. uh, you can lead with, with high regard in your mind for someone, but unless your actions make it conspicuous, then you're not really leading. Well, and I have to say, I can't help but think that this is the way our political system is supposed to work, and I know we can't get off on that conversation, but they, people that have a desire to serve the public good get into politics, and I think it's, it's ideally in this capacity, and then things get corrupted with money and um, you know other power struggles, but uh, what a beautiful way of thinking about it, and so... So you, then this kind of ties into your ideas around the hard uh, work of soft management, I, I guess, is that exactly. leaders now are. Uh, so talk a little bit more about that. Well, the, the hard work of soft management really is leadership because leadership is really, really hard. Managing is, you know, compared to leadership, managing is, is really easy. You know, the old saying, mm-hmm. you, you manage things and you lead people. But learning to lead is extremely difficult because to be a good leader, you have to have concern for other people. Even, you know, a great military leader like, like Dwight Eisenhower, uh, his definition of leadership was to, to influence people to do what you want but for mm. their own reasons, you know, for their own reasons. He had a certain oh. leadership mentality, and few people, I think, are, are familiar with that. Uh, he, he had a, uh, a standing order in the field that his commanders, his generals, his officers were to make sure that they took care of the needs of the soldiers first before they took care of themselves. But, uh, mm. you know, most people don't, don't think about that when they think about leadership in a military context. So this this whole idea of of doing things that redound to the benefit of others, you know, we mm-hmm. we, we especially as you said in the political context, just think just think uh, what what kind of a country we would have if if that kind of attitude uh, pervaded all three branches of government. Mm. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> That's a great I, a great visual. Um, so I see in your blogs you have a great interest in um, female leadership, which I think there's a correlation here, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So the old style of leadership is more command and control. That would be not as the servant leader. And then more enablement, empowerment you talk about, and uh, that it's, it's more of a female role. Could you share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Sure, sure. Uh, when I was doing research for the book, uh, the book was published in 97, and, and I was doing most of the research in, in 94, 95, 96. But I came across uh, a book that really changed my entire outlook on leadership uh, you know, from then forward. And that was uh, a book uh, called The Female Advantage, written by the, mm-hmm. the lovely and brilliant Sally Helgeson. Uh, she, she, I don't think Sally gets enough credit now. I mean, uh, no matter 
what business publication you pick up today, you get bombarded with, with stories about female leadership. And it's almost like uh, the media kind of, they rediscover this idea that females can actually lead, and they rediscover <laughs> it every couple of years, and they start writing stories about it. You know, I wish they'd get over it. I wish they would just accept the fact that females make great leaders and, and move on. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Sally wrote the book, The Female Advantage, and she took us uh, through four sterling examples of, of females who had you know, were greatly accomplished and, and did extremely well in their roles as leaders. And mm. the, the, I think if you want to boil the book down, uh, Sally tells us that women neither need to become like men, nor do they necessarily have to play by men's rules in order to lead successfully. Now, each of those oh. four female subjects mastered both the warrior skills, you know, the, the male warrior skills of discipline, will, and struggle, all the things that are necessary to achieve sub, you know, success in, public, in the public realm as, as we would normally perceive. But then they move beyond that to provide models of what leadership can be when guided by the feminine principles, collaboration, mm-hmm. communication, empathy, inclusion, you know, teamwork. Um, I think, you know, I, I created a, a term in a blog here uh, uh, several months ago called the inner other, and I think that's what Sally was talking about, was tapping into that inner other, mm. energizing both the feminine and the masculine inside of us. You know, uh, Carl Jung re- referred to that, I believe, as, as an androgynous maturity, you know, expression of both yeah. the male and the female energies. We are, I, I believe, that, you know, we come into this physical existence with an abundance of gifts. We're, we're given this abundance of gifts by spirit. And, and our lives are all about sharing those gifts with the world, sharing those gifts to depletion, and then returning to spirit. Mm. And so those gifts include both male and female leadership energy. So, so we need to learn how to tap into those energies, uh, you know, and, and a lot of it is, you know, I guess some of it is nature and some of it is nurture. Well, it's interesting you say that, that, that we have that in within us, all of us, because most of the research I've done around really strong male leaders, not necessarily power down, but the, the empowerment kind, say that they have empathy, they have a good sense of intuition, a lot of things that you would characterize to be more female. So it sounds like a lot of the, the leaders that are really doing well in an empowered organization have that aspect developed. That's, that's inspiring to me. Um, thank you. Well, we're just up on a break. So how about we go uh, to break? And then when we come back, we'll expand a little bit more about the male-female role, and uh, my guest today is Bernie Nagel, and you can read about him and access his book. He's sharing a few chapters at a time on his website for free, and his website is www.ultrapreneur.com. I'll spell that, A-L-T-R-U-P-R-E-N-E-U-R.com. You can also find a link on my Voice America host page under his episode description. And we'll be back in a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, I'm back, Olivia. I'm with Bernie Nagel, and he is the creator of the Entrepreneur Concept, which is... One who leads an enterprise with conspicuous regard for all stakeholders. So before the break, we were talking about where that concept came from and the four principles that uh, he sort of discovered as he was thinking about these ideas over time. Uh, People are good and want to give. Um, Everybody is really good at something. Uh, What? People want to know that what they do makes a difference, and people and profit are not mutually exclusive. So I really like those concepts. And then right before the break, we were talking about servant leadership and the divine feminine and masculine, or just the feminine and masculine aspects in all of us. And um, and I think, Bernie, you said right before the break that it could be nature or nurture uh, or a combination. And I just was wondering what you feel if, could anybody be a leader, do you think, with the right nurturing or the right training? Or do you think it is something some people are born with? And, you know, just your kind of thoughts around that. Not that we have the statistics here or anything, but what do you think? Well, there there are so many different and varied attributes that, that make, make up successful leaders that um, it, it's 
hard to generalize just from this one aspect, which is the male-female leadership energy uh, aspect. You know, there's you know, obviously there's there's competence and there's energy and there's confidence and there's presence and all these other things. So, so you can see where nature and nature, nature and nurture play into all of those things. But from the yeah. point of view of energizing this male and female leadership energy, which I think you know plays a a dominant role in in the ability of of leaders to develop into enlightened conscious <clears throat> mindful successful leaders uh, i think i think it's there and i think it's very important and i and i do think anyone can develop it the only problem is it's just like <clears throat> excuse me it's just like uh you know you go back to dolls and and trucks you know, what What are we brought up with? You know, what are we brought up to play with? What are we brought up to believe about ourselves and about our gender? Now, fortunately, uh, in my case, uh, I had two uh, incredibly wonderful role models, my mother and father. And they, to me, uh, I, of course, I didn't realize this growing up, but in, in retrospect, I realized they were living, breathing examples of this androgynous maturity that Carl Jung talks about, expressions of both male and female energies. My mother, uh, she she was an RN. You know, she brought herself up. She she put herself through nursing school. You know, uh, at, you know, in the years following the depression and into World War Two. Um, she was she was a tough lady, you know. She scrubbed floors and ironed clothes to put herself through wow. school, and and she had a very tough exterior. She could stand toe to toe with with doctors in the hospital or or whomever, but inside of her was this shaman like healer. She was this beautiful, gentle, compassionate person inside, and I got to see her in that role as a nurse at the bedsides of aunts and uncles and, and grandparents over the years. So I got to see both sides of that. My father, on the other hand, was this, he was a tremendous example of a guy who, from, from the exterior, if you didn't know him, you'd, you'd say, gee, this guy's a pushover, you know, he's kind of a patsy, but my father wasn't. My father was, he was very wise, he was a collaborator. Uh, he formed coalitions. He knew how to get people organized around ideas and get support for ideas. He had an external uh, facade of, of compassion and empathy and, and kind of soft, but he had a very hard interior, and he knew how to get things done. So I had these role models that were really kind of, in some aspects, reverse role models uh, of what we would typically expect. So, so to me, you know, as I was growing up, you know, the, these uh, these attributes of, of compassion and empathy and collaboration, and they came as naturally to me as, say, the, the instinct to pillage and plunder came to Julius Caesar or, or the impulse to raid and acquire came to Carl Icahn, you know. So, right. So I had that advantage growing up. So, so I, I, have, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think that nurture uh, can play just as big a role as, as nature uh, if mm-hmm. we give it a chance, if, if we're given the right role models and the right opportunities to learn something different than what is traditionally accepted. Well, and I think that's just a beautiful story. I can see how lucky you were. And, um, and in a way, I think uh, the nurture aspect is becoming more important. I mean, it's kind of the theme of my show is that because things are changing so quickly and technology is getting so sophisticated and job roles are so specialized now and take a lot of knowledge. 
we can't boss through fear anymore. We really almost have to nurture our employees to get the best out of them and to really be successful in business. So um, what a great model that you had. And, and so interesting that the one that seemed like the exterior strong one was your mother, and yet your father had that sort of gentle strength that came from making people feel good about sharing and then getting them to do the work as a group, sounds like, if I'm framing that correctly. So, no, no, you, um, you've, you've touched it. You've really touched it. Oh, that's great. Well, so I was thinking also about, they, they were very far, I would say, ahead of their time based on uh, um, guessing their age, uh, if they're alive or, you know, the generation they were in. And on, the, on my February 14th show, I interviewed Andrea Sullivan of Brain Strength Solutions. She does all this research about how our brains are wired and how we can actually rewire them to be more the way we want to be. And she was talking about the different, for the first time in history, we've got four generations in the workplace. We've got the traditionalists, which may have been maybe our parents' generation, and then our generation, the baby boomers, and then the Gen Xers, and then the millennials or the Gen Yers. And I have this experience, and I'd just like to see whether yours is similar, that the people from the traditionalists, let's say people in their 70s and 80s right now, if there are any of them are still in business or, or just in life, have a harder time adapting to change and then our generation maybe has a mixture of that. And then I've seen younger people are much more comfortable with it. They're also much more comfortable with collaborating, I think, because technology invites that. I just wonder if you had uh, similar experiences since you've worked for many different companies. Absolutely. Uh, your, your observation is spot on. Uh, and I think there's there's really two aspects that I, I think one is that uh, you know, it's a natural process. As we old, excuse me, as we age, uh, we tend to get more and more settled into our ideas, uh, our our beliefs about our you know our worldview about things in general, and it gets more and more mm-hmm. difficult to change those things. But I think the other thing is, as the uh, as the environment, as the world has changed and has as new ideas have become more acceptable as as the the culture and the mores of the culture continue to change uh, I, I think the the younger folks are the they're the ones who who are exposed to that they they have the most exposure they grow up in these new ideas they grow up in these new mm-hmm. sets of values and and so uh, they 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 come from a uh, a softer starting point, if you will, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think it it, it becomes it e- much easier for them to learn new things, to experience new things, and to accept new things, and uh, and and I do see that I see that in the workplace, especially with the millennials. Uh, I, I believe uh, you know I have, I have a good friend Ken Beller, and mm-hmm. Ken uh, has done tremendous research on the. The, you know the conflicts between the generations, and he's done it based upon what he calls values populations. He doesn't necessarily use start and stop dates, but he uses these value populations, the values under which people were raised. And uh, yeah, his work is really fascinating. And I, I, actually, I, I believe you're going to have Ken on at some point, so it should be. A great I am. Discussion. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to hear about that because I think you're right. It, it's 
it's a it's not so much about your age exactly, but the values in which you grew up and um, how they play out. And I I think it's interesting too that you're saying the millennials have a a softer starting point. It feels like younger kids have more empathy. They care more about patronizing businesses that that are socially responsible. And, um, yeah, they just seem to have a broader perspective on the nature of business and where their dollars go and how they affect the world um, from a, you know, I guess would be more of a feminine aspect of caring and nurturing. So um, that's really interesting, and I do... And, and inclusion. You know, they're, they, yeah. they're, they're very big on inclusion, and they're very, very big on meaningful work. You know, I want to do something mm-hmm. that means something. And uh, That's true, yes. And that's, that's really important to understand. So, in as early as page 8 of your book, you make a bold statement about how corporations are missing the boat by ignoring one of the most underutilized sources of sustainable competitive advantage an engaged and empowered workforce. So we've kind of talked a little bit about what that is, but can you elaborate and, you know, how do you get the attention of the numbers, people? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I wrote that back in 1995, uh, and and I wrote it really basic, uh, basically because of my experience, my exposure in the workplace to, you know, this rich, thick, deep vein of creativity and enthusiasm and discretionary effort that's available, and it, you know, it's lying right between the ears uh, of everyone in the workforce. But you, you got to figure out a way to get it out. And and I had discovered in the work that I had done in facilitating teams, uh, all the way from the shop floor to the boardroom, was that if. It depends on how you engage people. And if you engage people uh, as a servant leader with someone who, who regards their needs as important and, and mm-hmm. strives to find this balance between the needs of the company and, and the needs of the individual, a lot more of this great information, these ideas, this creativity and, and innovation pours out. And what you discover is that th- this this creative energy, this, uh, this source, this indis- uh, what, what's the word? Uh, uh, right, well, never mind. But this, this <laughs> tremendous source of, of creative energy, you can't compel it. You can't force it. But yeah. it will be given freely. It'll be given freely to someone who engages this, this new form of enlightened leadership. So it, it's about establishing uh, a new agreement, I guess, in the workplace, moving the culture of the workplace from, from a, a culture of coerced compliance, which is, you know, the old authoritarian model, and moving mm-hmm. that toward a, a culture of enthusiastic engagement where people will give freely uh, this, this, all this creative energy uh, if you just let them. You, you have to create an innovation-friendly environment where they feel safe, and where they feel that their needs are being met. Yes, I, and I remember a story, and I want to just say that they feel safe, and they're probably also rewarded for it. And the reason I thought of this is because I remember someone telling me about their brother who worked in a factory, and he worked on a machine that a lot of other men managed or, or operated every day. But he figured out that if he put this, something like a nail or a, 
a little pin in a certain place, his machine ran a lot better. So his results were a lot better than everyone else's. But he would put it in when he got there in the morning and take it out when he left. And because his results were so much better, they wanted to make him the manager. They wanted to give him all this responsibility. And he refused because he knew he, he didn't feel safe. He didn't feel safe sharing the idea. He didn't feel like he knew his job was secure. But they had obviously not created a culture where the whole company would have benefited from his knowledge. Because he did not, he never shared it. He just kept it as his security blanket, which is so sad if you think about it. Exactly. So So that that wasn't an innovation-friendly environment at all then. No, not at all. And I thought, well, what could they have done? And that's probably a, a long conversation. But it just shows you that what you said, there's so much knowledge between the ears of these people, so much creativity, ideas, innovation, and it, a lot of it never comes out because of the culture. You know, if you so, think about it, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but if you think no, about it. No, go ahead. It, Olivia, yeah. um, your, your competitors can outspend you on anything. You know, if, mm. if you get, uh, if you buy a machine, they can buy a bigger, faster one. If you spend money on advertising, they can spend more. They can basically outspend you on anything, any aspect, physical aspect or asset of your business. But they cannot match. They absolutely cannot match the creativity, the energy, the enthusiasm, and the discretionary effort of an engaged workforce. And, and that's available. It's virtually free. It's lying out there in the workplace, untapped, and virtually free. And all it takes to tap into that is this, uh, this enlightened, conscious, mindful leadership. Oh, if that's think, really powerful. You know, if, again, going back to, to, to when I wrote those words, you know, back in 1995, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, data or analysis or research at that time had been done yet on, on this whole area of engagement. Mm-hmm. But as you know, you know, the <clears throat> publications are full of research studies now on engagement. And, and if you read across all these studies, you know, DTI and Towers Watson, Accenture, and on and on and on, when you kind of average it all out, you find that out of every three workers in the workplace, one is somewhat engaged, one is, you know, somewhere between passive and detached, mm-hmm. and one is actively or maliciously disengaged. You know, so if you wow. think about that, think, what is the potential? What is that untapped source of sustainable competitive advantage that's lying out there and it's virtually free? That's an amazing statistic because it, you're not even getting the best out of, uh, of the, the best person. I mean, it, it's like the average is way below average. That's very depressing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, one well, out of three so, actively engaged. Yeah, thank you. So we're up on another break, and when we come back, I want to talk about how we can get people to look at this from a financial perspective or get the attention of the numbers people. So my guest today is Bernie Nagel, and we're talking about the hard work of soft management, and we will be back in a few minutes. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network does your business like many face obstacles to becoming successful would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week tune in for the second stage with hosts brendan anderson and jeffrey cadlick 
We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your plan going? Could you use a little help on your path to success? Why not step up and play big? Join host Chris Ruisi for a show that will help you identify the possibilities that await you. Too many people succumb to just being average when they could be exceeding average without too much more effort. It's time for you to become exceptional. Raise the bar to your success. Basically, it's time for you to step up and play big. Join Chris Ruisi every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a decision maker in your organization, a mid-level manager, or a team member? Stepping Stones to Everyday Success with host Kimberly Stewart is a program designed to provide you with tidbits and tools you need to achieve results no matter where you are in your organizational structure. Interaction is key, and you'll have opportunities to share your ideas, comments, and questions. Listen to Stepping Stones to Everyday Success, live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, uh, Olivia here, and I'm back with my guest today, Bernie Nagel, and we're talking about the hard work of soft management. And just before the break, we were talking about engaged and empowered workforce and how so many employees don't work to their potential and some actually work against their potential. And companies really suffer for that. And what are the ways that we can engage them? And so I wanted to get your sense, Bernie, on these statistics and how we can translate this so that people are willing to invest to change things? How do we get the attention of the numbers people? Well, you, you have to talk numbers, uh, pure and simple. Uh, I discovered a long time ago that, that talking theory and, and uh, talking compassion and talking empathy uh, to, to a very large extent fell on deaf ears. And so mm-hmm. when I wrote the book, I, I said, geez, i got to find some data. Uh, I can't just talk theory here. I have to find some data to support it. And so when I do speaking engagements now, uh, I, I usually reference uh, a body of data that's been around now for over 20 years, uh, and that's the the good work that's being done by the Industry Week magazine, which, by the way, is headquartered right here in Cleveland. Uh, they have every year they they hold a best plants competition, and they get uh, they have a, a, a long uh, data filled application process. Uh, it's, it's I don't know 15 or 20 pages. <clears throat> 
and they survey all these plants. In fact, plants uh, submit these applications, and they're considered based upon their data. They choose the 10 top plants each year, and then there's, of course, the, the one best plant, and they have a conference. And at the conference every year, uh, they have the, the compendium of all the data, not only for that year's competition, but for the previous 20 or so years. And going through that data, uh, which I which I used all the way back in in ninety four ninety five when I when I was writing the book. Uh, if you if you look at that data, these are companies that manage their 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 people by these principles by by these principles of engagement, uh, enlightened leadership, conscious leadership, mindful leadership, uh, and you you will find a lot of incredible data in there uh, where cost reductions, cost savings for, per employee averaging over $17,000, you know, productivity improvement over a three-year period of 45%, uh, cost change per unit over a three-year period of negative uh, 6%, you know, OSHA reportable incidents down 33 34%, you know, labor turnover rates uh, of 6% and below. You know, I don't know how many companies can can talk about turnover rates uh, that low. You know, defect reduction, shipment lead time, on-time delivery rates, and on and on and on. The numbers that that are generated by these plants that that manage and lead uh, in the in this manner, the, the numbers are incredible. That is how you spell competitive advantage. Uh, there's another and that will get the attention of the numbers people. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Industry Week has has been doing tremendous work uh, in this regard for for over two decades. But there's a more recent example, and there's a, a more recent book uh, came out in 2007 called Firms of Endearment, and the the lead author there was uh, Raj Sasodia. And they did an analysis of uh, I think it was 18 different companies. And who who manage and lead according to these enlightened principles, and they found that across the board, the results of these companies were were nine times more profitable than than the S and P average over a ten year period. You know, companies like Starbucks and Toyota and Honda, JetBlue, Google, Costco, Southwest Airlines. You know, names that are usually a Associated with uh, with high customer engagement, with uh, an enlightened workplace, their results how did are incredible. They, oh, can I just ask how did they word it? They probably didn't use the word, or did they use the word enlightened? Or how did they describe their workplace? Well, they, what they evolved that that whole idea into a term now that's uh, that uh, is referred to as conscious capitalism. And the the whole idea of conscious capitalism uh, has been around now, I guess, for six or seven years. Uh, but it's it's really gaining a lot of traction, and and the reason it's gaining a lot of traction is because the fundamental ideas of conscious capitalism are these same enlightened leadership ideas that we've been talking about for the last forty five minutes. Uh, there there are four. You know, basic tenets of conscious capitalism. Uh, one of them is higher purpose, uh, an organization that's focused on higher purpose. The second is a stakeholder orientation. And I notice the word is not shareholder, it's stakeholder. It's all stakeholders in balance. The third is conscious leadership 
principles of conscious leadership again that we've we've been talking about uh, you know for the last forty minutes or so, mm-hmm. and and the last one is a conscious culture, establishing a conscious culture where uh, the, the the relationship both inside the company with the workforce and outside the company with customers and with shareholders and with the world as a whole, with the planet as a whole, uh, is is based upon what can we do together to make the world better, not necessarily what can we do to enrich shareholders. And and the, the odd you know thing that happens is when you focus on all the stakeholders, when you focus on what's doing on doing what's right, as opposed to what what you believe is a short term enhancement of profit, you end up doing well for everyone. You know it's it's the you know the old saying uh, doing good by doing well or doing well by doing good. I I don't remember which way it goes, but but, but that's the whole idea. Focus on the uh, creating benefit for employees for customers, for vendors, and for the planet as a whole, and, and you will do better. And these, these companies that are highlighted in, uh, in firms of endearment really prove that, uh, you know, to, to anyone who wants to look at the data and the numbers, uh, the information is there. That's really inspiring because I feel like companies have the most power right now on the planet. So if, if they're seeing that there's a benefit from that, that's, that's great. So are you, when you talk about conscious capitalism, do they have any buzzwords? Well, uh, there, there are lots, lots and lots of buzzwords. There's, there's another book, actually, a more recent book uh, published in 2013, and the title of the book is Conscious Capitalism, and uh, it was written by John Mackey, who was uh, the CEO of Whole Foods, and the co-author, again, is Raj Sisodia. Uh, but but I think rather than talk about buzzwords, I, I think it's important to talk about these these four basic tenets. You know, mm-hmm. the higher purpose. You know, focusing on something larger than the corporation. You know, it's uh, yeah, I, and I believe it's something that's inside each and every one of us. You know, in the work we do, in the things we do after work. You know, we all seek for higher purpose. We want to engage ourselves in something larger than ourselves. And, and I think that idea, uh, in terms of co- conscious capitalism, that idea holds true as well, focusing on a higher purpose for the organization. Then the second one being stakeholder orientation uh, and then conscious leadership and also conscious culture. Now, there's, there's an awful lot of, obviously, there's, there's a lot written and a lot been said, uh, and a lot of research that's been done. There's also a lot of blogs, uh, there's a great deal of information on LinkedIn, LinkedIn discussion groups, uh, and there are lots and lots of examples outside of the ones that are, that are highlighted in firms of endearment. There are a lot of companies out there that are running their business in this manner, and we're, we're learning about new ones all the time. So they have a big conference every year, too, right, where John Mackey and a lot of these people speak uh, about yeah, they, what they're doing. So that's something, if people are interested in learning more, they could go to the Conscious Capitalism website and um, learn more about it. Uh, do you know what they, when they talk about the stakeholders, who, who all does that include? Well, uh, you know, the, uh, the, there's, there's been a, a, a focus around for, for a number of years on you know, focusing on people, planet, and profit. And, and so I guess that would be the, 
the, the, the simplest way to break it down uh, as, as those three P's, people, planet, and profit. But, but when you think about who are the stakeholders of an organization, you know, they're you know, there are three or four that are, that are key and fundamental. The first one, of course, and the one that has gotten the most attention over the years is, is the shareholder, the investor. Right. But, but as, as we've been talking about for quite a while here, that employee, that workforce is another stakeholder that all too often, historically, has been taken for granted. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the old Frederick W. Taylor uh, model of uh, planning the work and working the plan and timing everything out to the second and and squeezing out every absolutely every bit of efficiency at the expense of the work worker and you know I, I like to tell people you need, you need to trade in your Fredericks you know you, you need to trade in one Frederick for another you need to trade trade in Frederick Taylor for Frederick Herzberg you know who talked about value and enrichment in the workplace uh, and and finding personal value in the work you do and the whole idea of meaningful work. So, so obviously the, another stakeholder is is the customer, you know, they and you know over the years in addition to an overemphasis on the shareholder, at times there's also an overemphasis on the customer. You know, if if if, mm. if the customer is being emphasized to the to the point where employees are being taken for granted or the environment is being taken for granted, uh, then we've got to get things ba- back in balance. And I think that's one of the things that, that the conscious capitalism movement talks the most about, and that is mm. having your priorities in balance between and among the stakeholders and not overemphasizing on one or another. Well, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And we're just about out of time, but I really wanted to think about that. Yeah, how when you talked about the people, I think... A lot of people just go to the shareholders, and that is the focus of a lot of, of businesses that don't work well for the rest of the, the world. And then the ones where – I don't know of any that just focus on the employees. I guess that wouldn't be a very practical business model. But, but the balance, it just seems like that's really what's, uh, what's key. Well, so I just want to thank you so much for being on my show today. Um, and I want to just let people know again where they can go and get your book. Go to www.ultrapreneur.com. That's A L T R U P R E N E U R.com. Bernie, thank you so much for being on my show today. Oh, thank you, Olivia. I've, I've enjoyed it. And uh, of course, I, I always enjoy having a chance to talk about what I'm passionate about. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Dr. Janice Presser, CEO of the Gabriel Institute, and we'll be discussing teamability, a completely new technology that measures how people will perform on teams. You won't want to miss this. For, for a full description of the show and access to all past shows, visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights, and I will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parud, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 